Switching mediation providers might seem like a pain in the ass, but it doesn't have to be. If you're thinking of making the transition from Mopub to IronSource, we've got you covered. First, we've created a dedicated tool that removes the manual work when migrating to IronSource mediation. Second, we'll be holding workshops with IronSource experts where you can have all your migration needs taken care of. And if you want to do it yourself, we also have technical documentation for migrating to IronSource mediation in our Knowledge Center. To learn more about these initiatives and begin monetizing with IronSource today, head to www.is.com forward slash migrate. That's www.is.com forward slash migrate. Do you have the tools to turn your insights into action? Let's be honest, not all marketing activities are created equal. AppSlyer's analytics suite simplifies its complex data and gives you a unified view of campaign performance so you can make better, faster marketing choices at every stage of the customer journey. The goal is to create exceptional experiences that keep customers engaged. To succeed, you need to meet your customers where they are. AppSlyer's customer experience and engagement suite powered by a reliable deep linking engine lets you create personalized journeys that increase conversion and return on every experience. In addition, AppSlyer is going to keep your budget safe from mobile ad fraud. Bots and click farms aren't going to generate revenue for you. That's why you need a comprehensive fraud protection solution to make sure you're investing in the right channels and only measuring and paying for real actions. Are you ready to start making good choices? Great. Go to appslyer.com and get yourself an attribution partner you deserve. Welcome, 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 everybody, to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. I'm your host today, Mishka Katkov, and my guest is Jonathan Lai, general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, coming fresh off announcing A16Z's Games Fund One. But before we start talking about the Games Fund One, John, would you be kind enough to tell the uh, the viewers or more of the listeners a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, for sure. I'd be happy to, and, and thank you for having me on the pod, Mishka. Um, so maybe I'll start a little bit with a personal story in terms of um, you know, how I became a gamer and sort of what led me to A16Z. Um, but I, I've basically been a lifelong gamer for as long as I can remember. My, my parents immigrated from Hong Kong to a small town in North Carolina. Um, and then the fact is there wasn't much going on there. It was, it was a small town of a few thousand people. And so there was one of like everything, like one movie theater, one Chinese restaurant, one pet store. Um, and so my sister and I, we grew up playing video games with each other. We were a Nintendo family. We played every console from the Nintendo to the SNES to the N64 to the GameCube. Um, and Smash Brothers was our jam. We would have these huge LAN parties after school where we would invite everyone to our house and play for hours. And this was basically in my town, like more, way more fun than going to like the shopping mall or, or the movies or so on. Then I migrated to PC gaming when I got older. You know, I played competitive World of Warcraft arena during university. Um, and got up the top 1% of my server. Um, and when I stopped playing, I actually ended up selling my account on eBay for, for over 400 bucks. And I paid for all my subscription fees and my gaming setup and everything. So you could say I was a, a Web3 gamer before blockchain was even a thing. <laughs> but professionally, I've been in games for over a decade now. I started off as a producer at Riot in the early days of the company. Um, I basically led a team that built and shipped the Riot API which today powers companies like Overwolf, Coast, Twitch, and, and many others. And then I worked in eSports starting with season two, 
Um, and, uh, you know, fast forward a couple of years, Fiverr ended up being acquired in full by Tencent. So I got to know the Tencent team and ended up joining them full-time post-acquisition. And then at Tencent, I um, did a mix of publishing, biz dev, and investments. And so I um, one of the things I most proud of is I launched a WeGame platform, which is the company's Steam competitor in China. And then I eventually rose to lead the North America Games Investments team, where I worked with companies like Epic and Discord and Clay and Proletariat and many others. Um, joined A16Z about three years ago, and I've been almost entirely focused on games during this time. Um, we've invested in over 20 companies, including Roblox, Singularity 6, Mainframe, um, Overwolf, Artifact, and many others. And this morning, you know, as Mishka was saying, you know, we, we, we announced the launch of A16Z Games Fund 1, which is a new $600 million fund dedicated to investing in founders in the games industry, um, and first of its kind from a Silicon Valley VC. So, uh, Awesome. We share a little bit of a similar type of, a, at least start of our careers, uh, meaning as we were kids, I'm, I'm also, uh, you know, uh, from a different country, from Soviet Union, moved in. But I was, uh, the big difference is I was a Sega guy, not a Nintendo guy. Anyways, all of my friends, yeah, yeah, all of my friends were Nintendo, but I wanted to be different. Um, so let's talk about the, uh, the Games Fund 1. As you said, it's your inaugural fund dedicated to building the future of the games industry. But mm -hmm. A16Z, as everybody knows who's listening to this, has been investing in games for over a decade. I mean, as long like you have investments in Zynga and Oculus long before, you know, those companies were sold or IPO'd. Uh, what's new about Games Fund 1? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Games Fund 1 is, the, is A16Z's first fund dedicated specifically to investing in, in games. Um, previously, we were investing in games out of our main venture fund, where we also invest in consumer startups, enterprise startups, fintech startups, and so on. So games was an investment theme, but not its own vertical. And so with this dedicated games fund, I think the two things that are very different is one, it marks it marks a long-term commitment from us that we are committed to the space for the next 10 plus years, right? So we, you know, through bull, bull and bear markets, through technology cycles, through market shifts, um, we're basically planting the flag and saying that we think the games industry is going to be a pivotal part of the firm and we're committed to the space for, for the long term. And then two, it enables us to build out our team in a big way. And so, um, you know, our current investment team is actually quite small. We've got about five people. Myself, Andrew Chen, James Goitzman, Jack Sasso, and, and Robin Gore. When you basically cover the entire world and you know all, all of the different sectors and genres and, and different things within games. Um, and then one of the one of the uh, things that we're working on right now is growing that team to be you know double, triple that size. Um, and a key part of that is the the A16Z operating model, which is that um, you know you have a small investment team, but then you have a very large team of people who are basically functional experts that work with our portfolio to accelerate them, right? And so that, that covers you know, areas from go-to-market, uh, which, which is our name for business development, um, marketing, capital raising, talent, recruiting, HR help. Um, so we're building that out in a big way for games. Um, like that team is over 300 strong uh, across the firm and they're great at supporting sort of tech companies um, and then many, many of those needs, many of which those needs overlap of games, but we're really, really doubling down on games and hiring people from Twitch and Discord and YouTube and a bunch of great companies to work with our founders. Interesting. So let's talk about that a little bit later, but, I, or actually the next question, but first I want to talk about the 600 million. That's a lot of money, <laughs> no matter how you want to put it. 
How are you planning to deploy it? Is it bigger check sizes? Is it more of the follow-up investments? Is it more of seed investments? What's the strategy there? Yeah, so our strategy is still going to be to invest early. Like we think um, we add the most value when companies are still building. And so, um, you know, our focus to date has been at the seed and the series A. And then the thing that really changes with this fund is I think we're going to be able to double down on companies within our portfolio. And so, um, you know, indeed multiple rounds in a row, for example. Um, so if we, if we invest in the series A and then things are working out, like we would potentially lead the series B and then be able to sort of support our companies from seed all the way up until, you know, hopefully something like a, an IPO stage or, 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 or at least much further down the line. Um, and I think our founders really appreciate that, especially in you know times of sort of market volatility, when you're unsure of the funding environment down the road, to have a deep-pocketed investor that can invest in multiple rounds and support the company long-term. Well, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, that makes you definitely uh, a different type of a games fund because that's a, a lot of resources. So you can do a lot more follow-ups and lead the – not not do follow-ups, but lead the follow-ups. Um, but you also – like when I was going through the, uh, through the memo about the fund, I mean, you have some – some serious um, LPs here, like the founders of Riot, Twitch, e, um, sorry, partners from Riot, Twitch, EA, Tencent, Oculus, but the LPs coming from founders of Roblox, Discord, Riot, Blizzard, Sky Mavis, Twitch, Zynga, King. Um, talk a little bit more about the, uh, the support that the game teams can be expecting, uh, given the list of the LPs, as well as the 300 strong uh, support services, more like Spartans over there, but, uh, but yeah, the 300, uh, that, that you have over there. I didn't even think about that. That's, that's a great analogy to Spartans. Yeah. That, that's funny. Um, yeah. So I think, um, what all of those LPs I think found exciting is, um, you know, one, our mission and then two, the unique model that we have, um, to go about it. So our mission is that, um, like we, we want to invest in and help founders build generational companies in the games industry. And so the idea is that, uh, you know, we're, we're in, we, we, help our, we help our founders build companies, not individual games. And so we're in the business that basically, you know, looking for the next Riot, the next Supercell, the next Epic, the next King. And so, um, you know, that, that's obviously music to the ears of these founders because they, you know, they know what that journey was like. And then, you know, over the course of getting to know us, they, you know, many of them wish that we were around and investing when they were starting their companies like, you know, Riot and Discord and, and so on. And a couple of just brief key differentiators between us and sort of maybe some of the other investors out there is that um, we're entirely a team of builders investing in other builders, right? Like every member of the East 16 z Games team has either worked at a game company or founded, you know, a, a high growth startup. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I worked at Riot and Tencent, as mentioned, you know, James has founded two studios and, and Playfab um, and, and ran the gaming cloud at Azure. You know, Andrew is a lifelong gamer as well and ran the, the growth teams at Uber, um, you know, prior to, prior to that going public. And uh, Robin and Jack are uh, members of our deal team that are, uh, Robin's from, from Riot like myself and Jack is from Oculus. Um, so as a founder, you can be confident that when you pitch pitch us, the person across the table, like, gets your product, plays games, has a Steam account, you know, and, 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 and most importantly, respects the entrepreneurial challenges that you face every day, right? Like I, Hear all the time from founders that it's so refreshing to talk to a VC who actually plays games or like understands the pitch, um, and so uh, I think that really does differentiate us in the market. Um, and then the second point, you know, 
that, that you mentioned earlier, which I'll bring up again, is our, our operating model, which is that we have a small investment team, but then we have a large operating team that partners with our portfolio on areas that are important for their growth. So that includes um, biz, biz dev, recruiting, HR, marketing, capital raising, and more. And then with this games fund, we're adding even more functions specific to games. So we're gonna, we want to be able to help our companies reach Twitch streamers, manage their virtual economies, do performance marketing, test their games globally. Um, and so we're going to be really hiring a team to help them do all of that. And I think long term, the vision is really that if you take money from A16Z, it's actually optional for you to go out there and as a game studio, um, work with a publisher, because we actually provide a lot of the functionality that the publisher would actually offer. And we do it without any commercial, you know, commercial agreements or revenue shares or other restrictions on what a studio does. Um, and then the way we make money is just that if their game is successful and they become a valuable company long term, that's how we that's how we benefit as well. It's we believe we're also better aligned in terms of interests. Um, mm. Hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, yeah, a lot of it. Uh, I'm curious to hear how do you work with other games funds because you know the way you describe yourself, everybody is a gamer. Everybody has worked at a game company. That's exactly how games funds are as well. Like funds specialized on gaming as well as interactive entertainment. Um, given that that you have the three hundred and and you are very much focused on operations. I mean, the way you describe go to market, play research, getting connected with Twitch. That's very operational type of a support. Mm -hmm. So, how do you work with with smaller games funds that that tend to be well, first of all, they are coming often in pre-seed, so they would be already in the cap table uh, unless the uh, the company does an angel round, uh, or they would be competing against you or investing with you in a seed round or following with you in a seed round. So can you kind of talk about it? Because you're, you're kind of like the elephant in the room uh, compared <laughs> to a uh, games-focused fund that would be, you know, of the size of a couple of hundred million, uh, but they don't have the uh, the backing of, you know, your main fund, which I don't know how many billions that is. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So we love working with other funds. Um, we especially love working at the pre-seed funds. We work all the time with sort of angels and angel consortiums that send us funds. Um, when it comes to seeds and series A's, which are our sweet spot, um, we're very selective about our investments. And so we make a small number of investments. I think over the last three years, I think we've invested in about 20 companies and so on. It's actually not that much relative to some other funds that I think have invested in 50, 50 plus companies over the course of, this, of the last three years. Um, but the difference is we lead almost every single deal, right? And so we, we lead or we co-lead, and then we put significant capital and resources behind each company. And what that means is, you know, we, we always, we, we reserve capital for each company we invest in. So that way we can invest in not just this round, but also subsequent ones too, right? We spin up, as I mentioned, you know, a tailored operating team for every company. And so when you come in, we listen to your needs and you figure out what you need. It's like, okay, you're a Web3 games company, you need help in tokenomics, you need help in compliance, and you also need help in marketing, right? And we spin up a dedicated team that, that, that works with you. Um, and then we take board seats. We're actively involved in everything from recruiting, the marketing, the capital raising. And for most of our portfolio companies, I would guess that we are their first phone call if something goes wrong. And so as a result of this model, we generally don't do the small, like passive check where we follow another investor, but don't expect to be involved, right? 
because it, it ends up being the opposite of our operating model and, and our reputation as well. Right? Like our reputation in the industry is that we are very hands-on, we are very active. And so, um, um, yeah, so it's, and, and so what this means is that sometimes, you know, if there's a round, it's very tight. There's a bunch of firms there and um, they've already picked another lead investor, for example. Um, we will elect not to participate because there's just not enough room for us in the round. Um, but when we lead around, like we're happy to work with other smaller funds. We bring angels into almost every one of our deals. Um, and we ultimately defer to our founders and the, the composition of the round. Like we, we advise, but they always have the final say. So hopefully that, that helps shed a little bit of our context and in terms of um, your question. Yeah, yeah. You, you, like to be, you like to be in the driver's seat. That's, that's essentially it, if, if, you know, to be honest. Like, yeah, if it, you yeah. have all the resources and you, you, wanna, you want the operations to be run according to the support that you're given. Uh, and, you, you know, that's, it's pretty clear. And if you can't use your strength of the support services, then what's the point of doing the investment? That's, Is that the way of thinking? Yeah, and it's also like part of our brand promise, like why founders come to us is because they're, you know, they're looking for a lead investor, right? And, and they're expecting us to be hands-on. And so um, those are the types of sort of rounds that we'd love to, to be involved with, unless so when it's the opposite of that one. It's just a small check and we're not supposed to be involved and, and so on, right? So. Okay, but that's, that's clear. I mean, you, you can't say yes to everything. You have to, you know, pick and choose. Um, let's talk about the, uh, the verticals that the Games Fund One is investing. So you have game studios, essentially content, uh, platforms um, such as Twitch and Discord. So anything that enables game growth and you're investing in infrastructure companies, which provide different types of tools and services for gaming companies to operate and scale efficiently. Can you talk in more detail about why you've chosen these three verticals? And I'm very curious to know what verticals did you leave out when, when you were planning your investment strategy? Yeah, so I'll zoom up one, one level and actually just talk about sort of the macro thesis of the fund and then maybe the investment themes become a little more obvious from there. Um, and so a core part of what we believe in is that over the last decade, games have sort of fundamentally transformed, right? Like they started off being these sort of single-player entertainment products, much like the Nintendos that I referred to when I, that, I, that, I, that I played when I was growing up. Um, they started off like that, and, and today they've evolved to become much, much more. Um, right? And so if you look at the most successful games today, there are online services, there are social networks, there are creator economies, some of them are even virtual worlds. Um, and these games, you know, Fortnite, League of Legends, Roblox, Candy Crush, etc., they, they have more in common with a modern consumer tech company, um, like an Instagram or a TikTok, than they do the original Super Mario Brothers that I played with my sister back in the 1980s. Yet this transformation um, from like entertainment and the network is still largely like not well understood by the public or mainstream tech investors. Um, and so like we've invested in the games industry for over a decade and then like we feel like the best is yet to come. Like there's more, more innovation happening right now, more building happening right now than, than ever before. Right? And we have all these new areas like Web3, the metaverse, you know, resurgence in areas like VR, AR, in, in addition to continuing explosive growth in mobile games and PC continues to grow and, and console, which even though people predicted would die like some numbers of years ago, are still like have never been in like more popular demand where like people can't get enough PS5s and Xboxes due to supply chain issues. So the Games Fund is really set up to 
um, invest in, in all of these opportunities, right? Like we want to invest in basically the future growth of the industry. And then the way we think about it when it comes to the, uh, the investment themes is that <clears throat> the games industry is, um, if you think about the tech stack for a game, it's sort of divided up into a number of areas. Like there's first, there's the underlying platform layer. So these are, this is like the hardware that people build on. So the Xbox, the PlayStations, PC, mobile, Above that, there's the infrastructure layer. So this is Unity, Unreal, um, you know, PlayFab, like stuff that developers use as picks and shovels to basically build their, their apps. And then running on top of the infrastructure, you have the application layer, which are the actual games themselves and also the consumer apps that run alongside the game. So Discord, Twitch, and so on. And so we're investing basically up and down the stack. And then that's what those investment themes correspond to. So the game studios themselves, um, the infrastructure that basically helps people build those games and in the underlying platforms like the Robloxes, the Oculuses of the world where people can can actually um, build on top of. And then one of the exciting things to us is that in many cases, um, a game company might start at one layer of the stack and then vertically expand. And so, um, you know, Epic is a great example of that, right? Like they started off like building, building, building a game and they built an engine as part of supporting that game. And now they've commercialized that engine into Unreal and they've even expanded to become a marketplace. They're trying to become a developer platform. They basically become full stack. Roblox was the same way, you know, like Steam and Steam and Valve have also, you know, undergone that transition. And so um, I, I think the, the big opportunity in games is that you pick a particular area to start off in and you nail it and you build an audience from there. And then once you have that audience, you can go up and down the stack. And that's how you build ultimately, um, you know, multi multi billion dollar companies and you know the metaverse in the long term. No, I, I understand. That's a that's a good way of describing it. And is there something that you're not investing into? Like like are there so, some elements that you choose not to, or are you more focusing as as you said, kind of like on companies that can cover all verticals eventually? In terms of areas that we don't invest in, there are some areas which I think are harder to invest in early. Um, and so we might prefer to wait and invest sort of at a later stage. And so I'll just give you an example of that. Like consumer hardware has traditionally been a top one to invest in early because there's so much complexity around supply chains, having to stand up factories, like you know, shipping stuff around the world and then you know, making sure that you can fulfill logistics. And so um, you know, traditionally, like the best investments there, in our opinion, come at a later stage. And so I think um, there's nothing that we like have crossed up forever it's more of a matter of like, hey, like what's the right time and what's the right stage for this particular opportunity and, and vertical, if that makes sense. Um, but in terms of how we actually pick investments and say yes or no to you know, the individual companies, um, our general mantra has actually been, you know, at the early stages, at the C and the A, which is where we focus, to focus more on the founders versus the ideas. Um, and the anecdote that I use for this is that from my time at Tencent, um, we had a 100-person team called the Game Evaluation Center, whose job it was to play every game under the sun, you know, every game on Steam, on Apple, and Google Play, et cetera, and then write a detailed report about it. <clears throat> and that 100-person team, which had some of the brightest and the best at Tencent, still got it wrong, I would say, probably like 95% of the time when it came to predicting whether a game would be a success. Like they, they didn't catch PUBG, you know, before it launched. They didn't catch Fortnite before it launched. They didn't catch Auto Chess. Um, and they, they, you know, they, they incorrectly predicted, um, you know, the outcomes for those games. And so 
the best video game publisher in the world and a 100 person team of their best and brightest was not able to correctly predict whether a game will be successful pre-launch, I think it's really hard for us to do that as well. And so one of the things that, that, that I'm taking from my Tencent days is that the most important component of what makes a successful company is actually the team. You know, games is such a dynamic space, ideas change, genres rise and fall, like one genre that was popular last year may not be popular this year. But if you back a great team, we genuinely believe that they can adapt to the market. Um, and then for companies that are post-launch, we spend a lot of time digging into metrics and playtesting, right? Like the later stage of the company, the more important mm. the metrics are. Um, so hopefully that sheds a bit of light into how we, how we look at companies and, you know, and, and, and pick them, so to speak. Well, yes and no. Uh, let's be honest. Uh, this is exactly what every fund, especially games-focused fund that invests in seed, uh, or Series A, or even Pre-Seed would say, they very much focus on the fund, funding team, or founding team, uh, and the core team as well. Like as, as it gets into into a Series A stage, or even a Seed stage, you kind of have to have your core team and then show attraction in your ability to build a very strong team and a culture, as well as a product. So can you talk a little bit more about how do you, like, like what are the elements and how do you really evaluate the found, the founding team? Because this is something that, rarely funds talk about they just say we invest in yeah, great founders um what what makes a great founder I'm, I'm curious yeah we actually have a fairly scientific framework for this and I, i'm benefiting a lot from the work that a16z has done in the tech space as well um so a common thread that runs through all of our companies is that we want to back ambitious founders who aspire to build companies not games right i, I mentioned that earlier but i think it's important to, to reiterate that um, and depending on the founder's background, we diligence different areas. Um, a framework that we use for evaluating teams is freshman versus senior teams. And, and you, might have, um, <clears throat> you might have heard this before from, from Mike Maples over at Floodgate, who I think was the first to pioneer this framework, um, but we've sort of adapted it and, and made it our own for games. So, so freshmen are first-time founders. They might have a few years of work experience, but it's usually their first startup. And we found that freshman teams, they excel at product innovation. They usually have out-of-the-box ideas that are really innovative, um, and they don't, they've never built a game or a product in a space before, so they, they don't have any preconceived notions of what you can and can't do. Um, and historically, in the tech industry, the most disruptive teams have actually been industry outsiders. Like they've actually been freshman teams. So Airbnb was founded by Brian Chesky, who had never worked in hospitality before. Facebook was founded by Mark, Mark Zuckerberg, who had never worked in social networking before, right? And so... Um, we're excited about freshman teams if what we look for them, what we look for in them are a couple of things, but just to highlight two of them. Um, one, super high hustle and velocity. Um, they will make mistakes because it's their first startup, it's their first game, but we're counting on their ability to learn quickly and unblock themselves. You know, can they stretch a single round of funding to multiple prototypes and swings at bat until they get it right? And so we and so we're really looking for a team that is just been really scrappy, been able to hack together something and then, you know, be able to move really, really quickly, essentially. Um, and then the second thing we diligence is to ability to recruit. That's traditionally been the biggest challenge for first-time founders. You have to convince people who are way more qualified than you to come work for you. So a question that I always ask myself as I'm meeting a freshman team for the first time is, could this founder convince like a Sheryl Sandberg caliber executive to come work for them down the road, right? And if the answer to that is no, like, you know, 
what do they need to do in order to get there? And then do I believe that can happen? Um, and then the other side of that, that framework are seniors, right, that I, that I mentioned earlier. So seniors are, are the opposite. They're veteran founders. So they've shipped a successful game before. They've worked at a big company. They clearly know what they're doing, or this is their like second startup. Um, with senior teams, they typically tend to be really strong at all of the things that freshmen are bad at. So they're strong recruiters. They have a reputation. They know a lot of people. They can quickly hoover up talent from their networks when they raise money. Um, since they're very experienced and they're usually quite good at storytelling and fundraising, which are key skills for a startup founder to have. And then generally speaking, execution is not a problem. Like they built the game before, they know how to do it, right? Um, but the main area we diligence around senior teams is, you know, um, just, just to highlight two things. One, are they open to learning new things or are they stuck running the same playbook? If you previously built the AAA console game, are you open to building for mobile, for example, right? And how current are you in, the, in, in your thinking? You know, have you played all of the modern games the kids today are playing, right? Have you played Lost Ark, have you played Among Us, have you played Fall Guys, Genshin Impact, and so on, right? Um, and then the second thing is just, you know, can you adapt the constraints of a startup? You know, many of these folks come from companies with like unlimited resources. Can you go from that to being scrappy where you have to watch like every check that you're writing, you have to take a huge pay cut, you know, typically. Um, and then how long is their dev timeline? Like how quickly can they build? Do you have a plan to acquire your first 1 million users, right? Like you no longer work at a company where you have built in distribution or like you launch a thing and immediately like a million people show up to, to just download it. Um, <clears throat> so I'd say that most of the teams that we've invested in tend to fall into one of those two camps, right? Like they're either freshmen or they're seniors. Um, and then what we diligence for each of those teams is very different depending on your background and, and where they're coming from. And of course, like this is this is just a framework, so many teams fall in between and not everyone's gonna be a complete freshman or a complete senior, but, but hopefully this framework gives you a sense of how we think about things. Excited about NFTs in the metaverse? Ready to be part of the future of gaming? Recur is looking for talented producers, product managers, game designers, economy designers, and engineers. Recur is building branded NFT collectibles and games with top IP, including College Sports, Paramount, Star Trek, Nickelodeon, Sanrio, and more, using its best-in-the-industry technology platform. Recur's platform streamlines the NFT collecting experience. No crypto or third-party wallets required. Simply buy an NFT with your credit card or Apple Pay. And Recur's robust gamification system creates infinite collecting and gameplay possibilities from which to make compelling play and earn experiences. Recur is backed by some of the biggest names in crypto and NFTs, including billionaire Stephen Cohn, Gary Vee, and Gemini, among others. Join us now and get ready to ride a rocket ship. Let's fucking go. Sorry for interrupting this podcast, but I got an important message. It's about increasing your game's revenues. I bet your mobile games is ready to find new untapped audience and a juicy 40% revenue boost. Well, you can achieve global reach and acquire new players with local payment methods and exclusive content and with huge savings on platform fees. After recent events allowing developers to sell virtual items and currencies directly to players with a substantial savings on transaction fees, Exola launched WebShop for mobile games. This timely solution helps you unlock global potential and grow your mobile games beyond the App Store and unite your player community across all devices. Plus, it can also improve discoverability and boost player retention. If you're ready to increase revenue 
save on fees, and regain control over distribution, Exola Web Shop for mobile games can help you succeed. Visit exola.pro slash D-O-F or go to the link in this podcast description. Now, back to the episode. That, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And thanks for opening it up because, you know, every fund would say, you know, we value the, the founders the most. This is definitely a much more detailed view on, on how you how you approach it. And it's nice to hear that you're looking at both of the spectrums, the hustlers, the young guns, as well as the uh, the pioneers and the veterans. So it's uh, it's very interesting. Um, let me throw something. So uh, um, Michael Fan from from Gal- Galaxy Interactive, he was on a podcast, Game Makers podcast, actually talking about uh, Series A. I think that was the uh, that was the topic, and I don't know how they ended up talking about investment into founders that have left big companies. And he mentioned, you know, the riots and the blizzards and the bungees of the world. Um, in many cases, when you read VentureBeat and a funding story of an ex-Riot team or an ex-Blizzard team raising, you know, that $20 million seed uh, <laughs> with, a, with a, you know, astronomical valuation and, and some, you know, old school, really, truly like pioneers of the genres, uh, you would always, not always, but it feels like always see A16Z as a lead investors in, in, uh, in especially X riot teams. Now, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, is this a perception that people are getting or is this factual? I mean, founders of, of riot are your LPs. Um, you've worked previously at riot. Uh, I think you've uh, you've invested in Patron, which is a fund that has spun out out of uh, Riot that, that does uh, sort of a Web3 slash gaming investment. So it feels like you're so close to them, uh, just looking from the outside, that you're investing into these teams. And, you, and somebody even said like A16Z has a corner office at the Riot HQ <laughs> where, where the investments are being done. So I'm, I'm just curious to hear like, like uh, how do you like, is this a, only a perception or is this factual? Is it just because you have so much visibility in this truly great company? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think I'm closer to Riot than, than the average investor, you know, just because I, I worked there and I've kept in touch with the alumni and they played such a pivotal part of my, my history, right? Like I, I owe my start in games to them, right? Like I, I would not be where I am today if, if it wasn't for my time there. I think part of what's happening here is that... Uh, the senior teams that we invest in, right, like the ex-Viat senior producers, right, like those folks, they tend to get a lot of press and coverage from, from you know, from, from, from VentureBeat and game developer, et cetera, when, when they launch. And so I think that might be contributing to part of it. Um, but we invest in a ton of freshman teams as well, right? If you just look at the last um, couple of deals that we've done, like just just last week, we announced StartPlaying.Games, right? It's a tabletop games marketplace. And the founder and Nate is an ex-Google engineer who happens to love D&D. He's never worked in games before, and we backed him. Um, and right before that, we announced Loot Rush. Um, they're a team building a firm for Web3 games. The founder, Anderson, actually comes from a, a Latin American e-commerce background. Never worked in games before either, but super high hustle, super high velocity. Um, so we backed him as well. Um, when it comes to sort of the ex-Riot, ex-Blizzard, ex-Epic teams, um, I think... One of the things I do like about them is that um, uh, founders who have worked for top studios like those know what success looks like at the highest level. 
And so, you know, League of Legends is a free-to-play online service that's made a billion dollars a year for 10 plus years. In the, and it's a cultural phenomenon for, for generations of people, right? And so when they start companies, um, when people leaving, leaving, this, leaving Riot, for example, start companies, they usually have similar levels of ambition, which we like. They, they want to make a next-gen Riot. They want to make something which is going to be played globally by everyone for, for years that make billions of dollars. And we like that because, as I, as I mentioned earlier, like our mission is that we want to back ambitious founders who want to build generational companies, right? Like not just games, but companies. Um, and there are a whole host of sort of smaller things that you get from, um, from being at a venture-backed company previously, right? Like a lot of the buy it, buy it folks, they understand the value of equity and staying independent. Um, if you're an early employee at Riot, like the majority of your comp actually came from your stock and just like appreciation for that over, over time. And that's something that we sometimes have to spend a lot of time explaining to folks that, you know, don't come from a venture back startup. It's like, hey, like, here's why it's important to hang on to your equity and here's why it's important to maintain control of your IP and not do a publishing deal, for example. Um, and so there's a lot of sort of uh, cultural things that, I, that, that we like about um, founders who have worked with their successful companies. But I totally acknowledge those founders, um, you know, tend to have blind spots as well, right? Like they, as I mentioned earlier, they come from environments of un unlimited resources. They haven't had to think too much about go-to-market and user acquisition. Um, yeah, so, and, and those are all things that we work with them on. Um, and our hope is that by having a balanced portfolio where we have those folks working alongside the freshman team, and we do a lot to bring our companies together that they can learn from each other. Right? Like the freshman founders have these crazy ideas that are like constantly impressing the senior teams and then the senior teams are the grizzled veterans that like know how to keep the trains running on time and ship games. And so there's a lot to like about just building building the portfolio of diverse founder backgrounds like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, people coming in from big companies, uh, you know, they have a different type of uh, of skill set. They're they're, you know, they might not be well. They're for sure not used to being scrappy. They're not used to being lean. Uh, they're not used to moving fast with good enough quality. But what they are really good at is harnessing the resources of a larger organization. And based on what you are talking about, you know, the support services that A16Z provides, uh, these are probably the type of companies that are very accustomed of using all the support services and understanding the uh, the value of those support services given to them and knowing when to plug into them and, and you know, and organizing their organization so that they can leverage most out of it. Unlike the more leaner, scrappier founders that are, you know, not used to using so much uh, external resources for their, for their aid. So that might be also something that why, why these, these type of founders fit with a 16 Z type of a fund. It's actually, so, yeah. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that before. Um, but the, it really depends on the founder, um, you know, how independent they are and how much they need our help. In, in general, mm -hmm. we operate in a pull, not push model. So we're very hands-on, but only when asked. And so um, we're, not, we're not the type mm -hmm. that would actually proactively go to a founder and say, oh, hey, like you should be doing ABC, XYZ, and D, you know, ZDE, right? Like if they have an issue, it's like, hey, like, I need help reaching this influencer. Hey, I'm looking for a CTO, a level of a team. They come to us and then we scramble a team to basically respond to the issue and work with them. But it's always a pull, not a push model. Um, but it really depends on the founders. Like some of the, some of the teams that we spend the most time with mm -hmm. are freshman teams that we've seeded that are, you know, just a handful of people. 
and they're learning how to build a company for the first time, right? So they need help setting up their HR software. They don't know how to do recruiting. Like we're helping them write their JDs. Like we're literally, I'm literally going through my LinkedIn and saying, hey, like, what do you think of this candidate? What do you think of that candidate? And so on. So it does depend on, on the founder, I'd say. That's, that's actually super hands-on because, again, going back to the podcast uh, with Michael Fan, and I think it was um, Jasper from Bitcraft, um, Michael Fan, I think, was the one who was talking about, like, do not message him about specific, like, candidates. And, and like, <laughs> he will help you to get that candidate maybe over the board. Like, like if there's, if they're kind of in between, then the Michael Fan will give you a five minute, you know, pitch talk, but do not tell him, you know, that, that you're looking for a lead UI UX designer. It's like, that's not, his, like, I'm, I might be paraphrasing. People can go and listen to that podcast, but I, I remember him saying that, that no, that's not what I'm here for. So, so, and different, so, so, so very different. And, and different firms have different models, right? And so, um, I think, uh, mm-hmm. um, we, we can do that because we have a smaller portfolio, right? Like we, I only work with like, you know, less than 15 companies or so. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, that's, I can, I can devote a lot of time and attention to each one. And um, as we scale the team as well, and as we grow, like we'll, we'll, we'll have an even larger team to get to spend, spend time with our companies. So. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's quite unique. I, I have to say, like I've, I've not met investors that are so hands-on in, in helping. I mean, I haven't met all of them, but, uh, but yes. Um, so let's move on to kind of like zooming out in, in the uh, macroeconomic mm-hmm. picture, because I think, you know, there's so many things happening. The market is literally shifting uh, as we speak. Uh, you know, there's inflation is a huge problem, uh, both in U.S. and EU. I mean, the loose monetary policies that central banks have been have been driving, the COVID relief packages, both in EU and U.S., the war that is always affecting inflation no matter what. And we see the interest rates going up because of the inflation. we got an energy crisis. we got a food crisis. China is on lockdown, so that's impacting, you know, the supply chains. You can't get a PS5 no matter what, let alone, you know, uh, a car or anything. And, um, you know, looking at all of these signs, like you don't have to be an, an economist to understand that, that the recession is imminent. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to see. I mean, they, they're trying to do the so-called soft landing from the central, central bank perspective. But, um, but based on, you know, uh, my humble experience in economics and studying it, it's, it seems pretty imminent. So how are these how are these uh, macroeconomic factors affecting games industry in the short and midterm, in your opinion? Like, like, how do you guys see it? Because I, you know, I went to your homepage and you, you're, you have a very active blog post. You write about these things. You're, you're, you know, you have a team of 300 analyzing. So um, how do you, how do you see this uh, from, from the fund perspective? Yeah. So in general, we're long-term investors. And so we don't let short-term sort of market cycles change our investment strategy. But the nice thing about working at A16Z is they've seen multiple market cycles, right? Like um, all the way back there, you know, the 2010 crash, the 2018, and, and and a bunch of smaller cycles in between, and, and multiple sort of crypto crypto crashes and, and rises as well. And so, um, I think from our perspective, like we go back to fundamentals <clears throat> during any time of market volatility, which is our business is backing the very, very best founders and it's supporting them over the long term, right? Through multiple rounds, being patient, like helping them get through sort of like, you know, tough times. Um, and so I think that's what we'll keep doing. When it comes to the games industry overall, 
I actually think that games is one of the better industries, um, the wider recession or, or bear market. Um, <clears throat> and I think this is, this is you probably heard this before, but I do believe that games are sort of counter-cyclical in that as people's incomes go down, right, as they have more sort of free time, um, you know, if they're spending more time at home or if they're unemployed, et cetera, like they, they tend to play games. Um, and it's games are the cheapest form of entertainment relative to other types of media, right? Like it, it costs 10 to $20 right now to go see a movie. You can spend the equivalent amount of money on a game, which you can play for dozens, if not hundreds of hours. And, and many of these games are free to play, right? Like League of Legends, Fortnite, Candy Crush, you can just download it and just get started right now. And so, um, and then of course, like, you know, as, as, as folks are looking to connect with, with others, um, you know, during a time when people are spread out all over the world working remotely and um, some countries, as you point out, still have not recovered from the pandemic. I think games have done a phenomenal job of keeping people connected. And so, um, you know, I, um, I've got an Among Us group of sort of, um, you know, family and sort of, uh, you know, extended family where we continue to get together, you know. It used to be weekly during the pandemic and, and now it's we, we ratcheted it down to monthly. But it's still one of the few ways that I like talk to, um, you know, extended family members that I otherwise wouldn't get a chance to, to see in person for, for, for a long time. But just getting together on an iPad and just, you know, talking to each other as we're moving our sort of Among Us characters around, it, it ends up being a, a great way to connect. So I think games will do fine doing, doing a bear market and it might actually do better than, than most other industries. Um, and for us, from an investment strategy perspective, yeah, like we're long term. We focus on teams, we support them, you know, through multiple rounds and cycles. And so we'll continue doing that. Yeah. I, so I expected this answer. Um, I've, you know, I, I agree with that because the uh, the entertainment per dollar is, is quite significant compared to other streams of mm -hmm. entertainment. That's why I have this question. What do you think about blockchain gaming then? Because, you know, <laughs> six months ago, you could raise 10 million with, uh, with a deck, just saying that you're going to do Axie Infinity with dragons or trolls or unicorns or you name it. Since then, we had problems in the black blockchain gaming, you know, Axie specifically, which is, I know it's your investment, but it's also sort of a poster boy for play to earn games. Uh, they had their decline of their audience, then they got breached, then the, the Luna collapsed, what, last week? Uh, we see NFT prices even for premium NFTs like the Board A uh, and, and some other ones significantly going down. And we also see these traditional gamers revolting against them, whether it's Ubisoft or whether it's Square Enix, they're kind of all uh, up in arms, just like they were against free to play, but they're just against this sort of a change. Now, I do agree with your sentiment in the broad spectrum of gaming that that's the most value per, per spent dollar. But what do you think is going to happen to blockchain gaming, especially since the, uh, since the, uh, the macroeconomic turn is affecting the crypto prices, which in turns is affecting the blockchain gaming, uh, industry. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, a couple of points here. So we're, we're long-term bullish in web three. Like we think it is the next major computing platform, the next evolution of the internet. Um, and like all technologies, like, you know, there will be ups and downs. And I think the crypto markets, you know, have always had cycles and we're going through, you know, one of those cycles right now. Um, and so as mentioned earlier, like we still continue to invest in Web3 games. Like we're still excited, but we, we, we don't let up, we're not letting short-term prices of crypto tokens drive our investment strategy. Um, and then just zooming out a bit, like my personal hypothesis around Web3 is that it just ends up actually being a part of every game long-term. 
just like the cloud is a part of every game today, right? Um, you know, it's it's just a part of the tech stack that most multiplayer games run on. And as a consumer, you don't choose a game based on whether it runs in AWS or GCP or Azure. <clears throat> it's just running in the background and it makes certain types of gameplay and mechanics possible that was not possible before. And so if you believe in this thesis of sort of um, crypto and Web3 as like a fundamental enabling technology for games, I think the scarce resource is actually not technology, but game development expertise, right? The ability to design and build a fun game that people want to play for hundreds of hours, that's already a scarce resource today, right? In Web2, let alone like in Web3, where you then need to go learn new technologies. Um, so our focus um, has really been, you know, on, on the Games Fund side, our focus has really been on investing in veteran game developers to know how to build games that are going into Web3 and are eager to learn. And we work with our crypto team to be their guides, like educating them on what technologies they should use, what chains they should build on, how to design their token economies, what's the best way to build a community, you know, on Discord with, with, um, with your early sort of NFT holders and so on. Um, but I think like long-term, I'm bullish in Web3 as being a fundamental technology that's ultimately just a part of every, every game's tech stack, right? Like you can choose to host a part of your game in a centralized database and other parts of your game in distributed databases that are on the blockchain. And then you will choose to do that for, for different types of mechanics and genres and games. And I think we're still in the early days of people figuring that out. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So just focusing focusing on really the entertainment and the game value rather than rather than Sorry. how to make the most money even without putting the game out, which yeah, seemed to be right. the uh, the impetus of a lot of these right. crypto projects. Um, yeah. Okay. And what do you, what do you think in sort of a, in short to midterm needs to happen for blockchain gaming to be adapted more? Is it just releasing games where that leverage this technology without putting the technology first, sort of a, you know, upselling the game's technology. So meaning, uh, I don't know, a new version of world of Warcraft <laughs> comes out and it has blockchain element to it. It's not promoted. It's just there. So eventually you can just trade more efficiently inside the game. You're, you don't advertise it that it's built on Solana yep. or Ethereum or you name it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, there's just going to be a store where you can do all these cool things. And we're not even going to talk about blockchain. Only the crypto bros will know that there's a blockchain and what technology you use. But that's a very small subset of all the players uh, or the crypto sys that, that would actually you know pay attention to it. Is that the sort of a yeah? Thesis? No, absolutely. I think you um you, you hit the nail on the head, which is that uh, I think the the blockchain game that ultimately attracts a hundred million gamers to it, right? Like they, they get to a Roblox or a Fortnite level scale. My my personal belief is that it's going to be a game that is just first and foremost a fun game with like innovative gameplay, like a new genre, new mechanics that no one's seen before, and it happens to run in the blockchain, right? Like it's and it's and the blockchain is sort of invisible technology. It's not marketed as a Web3 game. It's not a play-to-earn game. It's not a game that people go in expecting to make money. It's just a fun game. And then there's some parts of the game that run in the blockchain and then enable you to, you know, to hold NFTs, for example, or you know, trade trade those tokens directly with other players. And then if you get to a certain point in the game and you get to enough sort of like, you know, um, you, you progress enough along along the uh, the game sort of um, life cycle maybe you can make money as well, right? Because like 
the, the, the account that you own, the character that you have, like the, the NFTs that you hold, they end up being valuable to other people. But that, that is almost a secondary benefit. It's, it's sort of like me back in my World of Warcraft days. Like I played the game because I was trying to be, you know, the number one like arena gladiator. And at the end, I made 400 bucks because like I had achieved so many, I had like, I had so many skins and mounts and I had this really rare title. And then there was a lot of people that was willing to pay me for that on eBay, essentially, right? And so I think a similar thing will happen. Where, um, you know, I think that the game that succeeds at large will largely have the blockchain be invisible to end users. Um, this, is my hope. this is my personal hypothesis. Um, and of course, like, if you would ask like an investor at the very beginning of like mobile, what you think the most successful mobile games would have been, they probably would have ironically looked at some other PC or console game and then been like, oh, like there's going to be, you know, I don't know, there's going to be Super Mario Brothers like on, on mobile or something, and it's going to be like really successful. And so I feel a little bit like that, you know, trying to make extrapolations about what types of games would be successful in crypto. Um, right? Like you would not have predicted, um, you know, in the early days of mobile that like a game like like Pokemon Go from Niantic would ever exist or people are walking around in the real world and it's like using your location to track where you are and there's like an AR lens. Like it would have been unimaginable at the time when yeah. Angry Birds was like the most advanced smartphone game that there was, right? So um, <laughs> I think a similar thing will happen in, in blockchain. So I, I, I expect to be wrong, but um, you know, that, that's partially why we continue to back great game teams. That's what I'm hoping is that they will be able to figure these things out e even if I can't, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, no, this, this makes all the sense. And it, it's a much more games focused approach to these, which is sadly, I, I think a lot of, um, a lot of detractors are coming from the perspective that, that most of these projects are being just very scammy. The fact that they're trying to monetize as much as possible with a couple of images of selling some characters of a game that doesn't exist. And just, you know, <laughs> the speculation and, and, um, and all this sort of a nefarious activity. And when that is put in upfront and as a target of a young company, then that, that kind of shifts the company's focus on the wrong things. Yeah. So it's just, let's make a cool game. And who doesn't like trading inside the game? I mean, totally. let's be honest. That's, it's fun. Uh, there's, there's nothing bad in it. And, and a lot of companies have tried, some have succeeded, most have failed just, and that might've been just yeah. because of the technology. So, um, I, I, I actually understand that thesis yeah. and um, I support I it. think so much, of, um, I make one last comment there, which is, I think so much of the focus yeah. on financialization mm -hmm. around sort of these gaming NFTs, I think comes from the fact that like game NFTs rose to prominence shortly after like art NFTs did. And so, um, you know, there was, there was a period of time early last year when people were buying like expensive um, digital art instead of profile pics, right? And so, um, and, if, and if you're buying like a piece of an art collection, there's only ever going to be, you know, a hundred of these artworks or, you know, a thousand or something. And then the strategy for that is really that you buy a piece of art and then you hold it and you expect the price to go up, right? Like that, that's also how it works in real life. There's only so many Picassos. You buy a Picasso, you hope it goes up in value. But then I think the fact that gaming NFTs kind of became popular right after sort of the art boom made people think it was a similar sort of paradigm. It's like, oh, hey, like I should just be able to buy a character in this like game and I should be able to hold it and do nothing and expect the price to go up. And that's like the opposite of what games are actually about. Right? It's like you need, to, you need to go play them. You need to actually be a member of the community. You need to actually like have fun while doing this. 
But I think like so many, so many investors are sort of like thinking about game NFTs from the perspective of art NFTs. And I think that's where that disconnect comes from. Um, but I think we just need more Web3 games out there in order to correct that misperception, right? Like you need more fun games that are out there where it's very clear that the focus in the game is, is gameplay and not art. Um, we just invested in MetaTheory, which is a Twitch co-founder of Kevin Lin's um, new Web3 game studio. And they did a fantastic job of emphasizing gameplay from the very beginning. Like in order to mint their NFTs, you actually had to play a game. And so the idea was like, hey, like if you're just looking for a quick buck, this is not the game for you, right? Like you got to go create an account, play the game, actually get to a certain spot in the leaderboard, and then you'll earn a, the right to mint an NFT. And then this is just a, a warm up for like the actual multiplayer game, which is what you're going to spend all your time you know, putting your NFTs into, right? Um, so I think I think the good games are there, there's a lot of great games coming, um, and it's just a matter of time. And um, yeah, so it's so, so very very excited about the long term future. All right, um, likewise, actually. Um, so, uh, John, thank you so much for for joining the podcast. Um, one of the first ones about talking about Games Fund One. And um, how, what's the best way to to kind of get connected to pitch to Games Fund One? Uh, to talk to you guys, um, what what are what are the ways to uh, yeah to pitch yeah. to guys? Reach out on Twitter. We're we're very active in Twitter. So I'm I'm at Tosselot T O C E L O T. It actually used to be my World of Warcraft um, character name. That the ones I spent hundreds of hours playing <laughs> arena in. So it's still got a little piece of me in there. Um, yeah, reach out on Twitter, and you know our, our DMs are open and excited to to talk to founders who are building out there. Perfect. Um, John's Twitter handle will be in the description below. So just tap on it, click on it, whatever platform you're listening or watching. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode. If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, do remember, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time.